You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Soupcast, coming to you from Archaeosoup Towers. By popular demand, we're taking selected videos from the Archaeosoup back catalogue and bringing them to you as convenient podcasts. As the name implies, with Archaeosoup you get a bit of everything thrown into the pot. Archaeology, discussion, humour and debate. You can find out more at archaeosoup.com. So sit back, relax and enjoy our hearty helping of Archaeosoup. Questions of Doom Hello and welcome back to another Questions of Doom <laughs> In this series, as ever, I attempt to answer questions that you send my way using the archaeosoup.gmail.com email address as displayed on the YouTube channel homepage but as you'll also see at the end of this video. In answering these questions by video, it is my fond hope that the answer is not only useful to the person who's asked the question, but also anyone else out there who may be wondering the same thing. Now, today's question of doom is a bit of a biggie. It goes, actually, I think, in many ways, to the beginnings of archaeology. Uh, and it's also seemingly been inspired by the recent um, update that I did of the Hidden History's What is a Celt video. Uh, this one is to do with druids, and it goes like this. <clears throat> Dear Mr. Soup, who precisely were the druids? According to my best knowledge, the druids left no written record of their own regarding their religious beliefs and practices. All written accounts are hearsay from the Romans. Any item presented as an authentic druidic text is not really. Modern druids, of necessity therefore, are engaging in fantasy role-play. What have I got right and what have I got wrong on this? What does the archaeological record actually say about the Druids? And how did the Tuatha Tuatha de Danann get mixed up in this? Apologies for the Irish pronunciation there. I'm terrible when it comes to pronouncing Irish. <clears throat> what kind of linkage would the modern Druids have to the original Druids? Is Druid really an amorphous catch-all category as slippery as the Celts. Margot. Well, Margot, you ask a very good question. You also ask it, and I, and I dare say, a sort of a rather um, risky way, a, a very uh, uh, challenging way, because you're not really shying away from some of these issues. Um, as I say, this question goes to really to the, to the, the very beginnings of archaeology as a, as a profession. Um, the the transition from antiquarianism into full archaeology, being archaeologists, is littered with texts written by uh, hobbyists and then sort of bit by bit gradual amateurs and then professionals, um, serious academics, who refer to ancient monuments in Britain as druidic. You may remember that in the recent In Focus Castle Rig video, it was at one point called a druidic monument. Uh, and this, this question of what are the Druids, who are the Druids, how do they relate to prehistory and in turn to history uh, has been, really, I suppose, at the, the heart of, of archaeological inquiry for a long time. Um, but uh, you cannot deny, one thing that cannot be denied, especially as a good Welsh boy um, <laughs> growing up in, uh, in a modern Celtic society, 
um, you cannot deny that the Druids are a powerful symbol. They are still very resonant. Uh, you, for example, if you are from Wales, you'd be aware of the Eisteddfod, which is an annual meeting, which literally means the sit-down gathering. Um, in school you're told Eisteddwch, which means sit down. Um, the uch bit being a command, you know, uch. Um, so the, at these Eisteddfods, the, actually the Druid, Druids, um, they officiate over various ceremonies, competitions, and they sort of they're the seal of approval. So they're still they're still quite powerful in that sense today. They're certainly a powerful an image, but as you say, it's a good question. What are they? How do they relate to the druids that we are aware of from the past? And what do we even know about the druids from the records which are uh, still around today? Well, it has been said that we can know virtually nothing about the Druids because, as you say, Margot, there is no written records from them. There's no um, uh, oral traditions directly from uh, from that time, um, which haven't been reinterpreted or written down by people who don't know say what they're writing. Uh, and often we're relying on second or third hand accounts when we're trying to reconstruct actually Iron Age society, never mind the role of the Druids. Now there are various people who we can talk about, various people who, who refer to the Druids in the classical world, but really it seems that they're all kind of copying off each other, the anecdotes that is, um, to a certain extent. Really, the, 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 main, the main person that, we, that most people go back to is Julius Caesar, uh, when he wrote in his uh, Commentari de, de Bello Gallico, sorry, uh, book 6, written in the 50s or 40s uh, BC, uh, when he commented on the Druids and their role in society. He said several things, I'll just briefly outline them. Uh, first of all, he said that uh, Druids were one of two main uh, groups in society, also sorry, higher groups in society, uh, nobles and Druids. So they're very, very important. Supposedly they're, imp they're important for worship and sacrifices. They met annually at a sacred place occupied by the Carnute tribe in Gaul. Uh, and they regarded Britain as a centre of Druidic study. That's a very interesting um, idea. We'll return to that, I suppose. Um, they are not found east of the Rhine. So the, 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 the Gauls had them, but supposedly the Germans, the Germanic people, did not have them uh, at this time. Uh, according to Caesar, many young men were trained to be druids uh, for up to 20 years. And what this training entailed, we don't know. It probably had something to do with learning uh, law off by heart. Now, this is quite interesting because actually there is a tradition in medieval Wales, for example, of bards and poets being trained for around 20 years, thereabouts, uh, from the age of, you know, very, being very young children to recite poems, learn the equivalent of libraries off by heart and um, by going to a hut, essentially having a bag or something put over their head, a stone laid on their chest just to sort of focus the mind or whatever they're, they're, they're having to, to remember. And I imagine it would focus you. Um, and, uh, and in that sort of sense, that's an atmosphere of sensory deprivation, they become experts at a, a certain a mass of knowledge. So there's something, something there possibly. Um, he also claimed that uh, that they believe that souls do not perish when the body dies. Actually, they continue on, potentially even in a form of uh, reincarnation. 
Now this is interesting again because it brings into sharp contrast, uh, brings into sharp contrast sorry, with certain archaeological observations. For example, the Hochdorf chieftain's burial, the Hallstatt uh, burial, where we have a chief who has been laid to rest seemingly at an end point, or very much a transition point in, in the life-death cycle. Uh, this person has around them uh, material goods for, it seems, the afterlife. Um, they have uh, feasting uh, material, uh, equipment after the model of the ideal uh, Greek symposium sort of feasting uh, sort of number of, of guests. The, he has clothes, there are, uh, there's, the, there's the ability to, to have transport and um, to clean oneself, to drink, to eat, to, to fight as well. So that doesn't really speak of the belief that the chieftain is going to pass into another body potentially uh, even being reborn the day that he dies or, he, or she dies. What this actually speaks of is, is their belief that the chief or the person in a burial like that is going on somewhere else and will be taking and need these material goods there as an adult. So that sort of possibly contradicts this observation, uh, which other common, uh, commentators at the time referred to as being Pythagorean this idea of, 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 uh, of the soul being immortal. Um, <clears throat> apparently they were concerned with the stars and the movements of the planets, but then again, which society isn't? That's a fairly amorphous claim. Uh, and again, just being generally important in terms of um, uh, administrating day-to-day uh, -day life. They were exempt, apparently, from military service. They didn't have to pay taxes, and they had the, the power to excommunicate people from society and from religious festivals. Um, so these apparently were very, very powerful people. Other people even went so far as to describe the Druids as being powerful enough to stop a battle by merely walking onto the battlefield. A very uh, fascinating idea. But again, how real is this? Now, Greek and Roman writers often referred to the practice of human sacrifice. Famously, for example, Julius Caesar describes the Wicker Man scenario, where people are put into this giant effigy and burned alive. Again, you have to ask, how real is this stuff? To what extent is this um, hearsay, as you say, Margot? Because we're talking about a time when history wasn't history as we know it. Often an anecdote was as good as a, a real historical fact. A fact was a very uh, amorphous thing at the time. And also we, we need to understand that, the, that Caesar was writing for an audience. He wasn't writing for the future. He wasn't writing for posterity. He was writing to be dramatic. Uh, that said, though, that we do know that uh, later on in the 70s uh, AD uh, that uh, the Emperor uh, Tiberius supposedly had to introduce a law banning human sacrifice. So potentially human sacrifice in some form did exist in the Iron Age society. But, um, but again, these, these dramatic images, how real are they? We have to ask those questions. Um, now, actually, all of these different uh, these different concepts, and actually later on into sort of medieval um, sort of post-written uh, documents, so where monks are writing down um, accounts from the post-Roman post world. Um, all of these different uh, these are observations about druids, where druids are mentioned, and they eventually they sort of become sorcerers in, for example, Irish folklore. You have to ask the question um, of the author as to whether or not they are biased, or whether or not they understand what they're writing about. Um, it's a little bit like early texts describing, say, the Americas, or Polynesia, or, uh, or other places. When Europeans meet other people, uh, or met other people, um, in sort of the, the latter 
half of the second millennium. Um, what were they writing for? How were they observing these people? For example, the Spanish, when they wrote about Mesoamericans, were they, were they accurate? And it seems that they probably weren't in terms of their observations of the, let's say, the primitive nature of the societies that they're observing. And that's actually a word which is used to describe many of these texts from classical authors is primitivism. Um, people like Franz Boas, the, uh, the, the, the eminent um, anthropologist, really challenged this with the concept of cultural relativism. And you have to say, well, actually, the Romans, the Greeks, um, and later, say, for example, the, the, um, the, 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 uh, the Christian monks didn't have this concept of other societies being equally valid to their own. Um, if they wanted to, they could just dismiss something as mysterious or primitive or barbaric, and that was, that was enough for them. There was no inquiry going on beyond the description. So it is important to, yes, okay, look at those descriptions, which are you know, we've all heard this stuff, we've all heard these different descriptions of Druids, but you also have to ask the question, um, how and why were these people writing? Today's show is sponsored by Field Technologies Incorporated. Tired of illegible, crumpled, muddy paperwork? Field Technologies has proven software for recording shovel tests. Easy to use and priced affordably, Field Technologies software has helped many archaeologists just like you ditch inefficient paper forms. Schedule a free trial today at fieldtechnologiesinc.com. That's fieldtechnologiesinc.com. You do the digging, we'll do the paperwork. Now back to the show. Now, modern druidism... Uh, it can be stated categorically that really in the 18th century, in the 1700s in Britain, it starts off again, most famously uh, with John Albury in and around Stonehenge. So there is a break, there's a huge break between the ancient Druids, uh, if they existed or how they existed, and modern Druidism. The so-called modern cycle of Druidism is definitely distinct, definitely separate. There isn't a continuity. Uh, and actually, in many ways, modern Druidism came out of an, a desire to try and understand these so-called Druidic circles, like Stonehenge, like Castle Rig, by re-communing with them, by, by becoming Druids and by sort of trying to feel out the landscape. It's an admirable thing to do as a historian or as an archaeologist or as an antiquarian, but it sort of muddied the water when it comes to the Druid issue. That said, though, that said, despite this definite break, uh, and that, so I suppose, goes to a certain extent in, in answering that question in terms of the relationship between modern Druids and ancient Druids, there isn't actually a re relationship. There is, interestingly, a possibility of an archaeological find underlining something of the Druids, and that is actually in the, in the, the case of uh, a burial called the Deal Warrior, found in Kent. This was, this was a man buried around 200 to 150 BC with a sword and a shield and wearing a very special piece of headgear. Now, this was it was too flimsy, really, to be an effective helmet. It didn't seem to have any padding, definitely didn't provide much in the way of protection. It's, it's bronze with like a, a band and a thin strip um, uh, crossing the top of the head. Um, and the, the burial itself, actually, the man, the person who, who was buried, is very gracile, very, um, uh, very fragile in that sense. 
potentially this is a druid potentially this this burial this archaeological burial some people look at this look to this as being an indicator of a druid someone who has a sort of a, a, a symbolic role in terms of they're, they're buried as a warrior they have this weird crown thing but they're also a bit sickly they're a bit removed from society a bit mysterious and and actually i personally quite like that as uh as a potential druid, as a candidate for being a druid, I think that um, that the Deal Warrior is a good candidate. But that's that's as close as we get. That's basically as close as actually most archaeologists are willing to go to actually saying, okay, yes, we've found evidence of druids, because well, we haven't. Um, as for the the Tuatha de Danann, sorry about the pronunciation again. The only reference I can find to them is uh, linked with druids. Really, is uh, is, a, is a Facebook page. Sorry to say, um, the Tuatha de Danann uh, actually start as a sort of a, a group of supernatural. Um, myst mystical people in Irish mythology and again it seems as though modern people are linking themselves with that um, a little bit like John Aubrey and Stonehenge so once again there is uh, no uh, no link there so hopefully this has gone some way to sort of describing I suppose what druids are and what we know about them and also actually asking the right questions about the Druids. I mean, I've tried to sort of outline the questions that we should be asking. That is to say, were the writers even aware of what they're writing about? Um, or were they being willfully ignorant? Or, or were they just misunderstanding uh, um, um, certain elements? Uh, right the way down to actually full-on people just wanting, wanting desperately to be Druids, but they're never going to be able to replicate it um, accurately. That said, though, the final point to your email, Margot, when you say, um, when you ask, sorry, if druids are an amorphous catch-all category as slippery as the Celts, I would say no, no, they're not. The druids definitely, for all their mystique, for all the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the trouble that we have actually, actually tying them down, they are nonetheless very identifiable based on what we know of them as it were if we if we could find them we would find them if you see what i mean um based on these descriptions uh which are uh, you know they are from the time even if they are anecdotal there'll be something to them um there is a category there we can identify this this block of of attributes and look for them um when i when i used it when i so when i discussed the term uh the celt as being a bit of a catch-all really the emphasis there is on the Celts. I mean, Celts and Celtic and uh, and um, other associated terms can be used to refer to art styles, to modern cultural blocks, to uh, ling linguistic groups, this kind of thing. What I was questioning there was whether or not there is such thing as the Celts, a single Celtic identity, a single Celtic gene, a single Cel single Celtic um, mass of people, which are and have only ever been. Celtic and the answer to that is no you know that's just not true um, but when it comes to the Druids because they're not we're not talking about a people we're talking about a role in society um, that is much easier to actually to be a bit more categorical about if they existed then they're not amorphous and a catch-all category and modern Druids and Druidism is referring back to a role which we scarcely understand um, some would say in order to to gain authority um, in a world which uh, which is crying 
crying out for a sense of the mysterious. Others, though, would say in a, uh, they are doing this in an honest attempt to, to reach back to some pagan roots, to some ancestral sense of identity. And, and again, as a boy who loves the Eisteddfod, um, I'm not going to come down on either side of the fence too harsh, uh, too harshly when it comes to this issue. Um, that said though, I do agree with the British Museum. Druids and Stonehenge are nothing to do with each other. <laughs> the Druids probably went to Stonehenge at some point, uh, you know, uh, who wouldn't? Stonehenge is very, very cool and a very important place. And undoubtedly, they probably saw it as interesting if the Druids were in Britain. But they didn't build Stonehenge, if you see what I mean. So, uh, so I agree. I, you know, there are places where I do definitely draw the line. Um, anyway, hopefully this has been a, a useful video, a useful exploration of the issues surrounding druids, what a druid is, what a druid isn't, and uh, and whether or not the druids are uh, in fact just made up. Uh, I don't think that they are, but I do think that identifying what they are is far from an easy thing and as I say the closest I would be willing to go would be something like uh, the Deal um, Warrior Burial. Thank you so much Margot for your question and I'm sure people will want to comment below please do share your thoughts and feelings on this this topic and um, I would love to read them and as, as ever do keep the conversation civil if there are any disagreements keep them civil folks. Um, as ever until next time do take care bye bye. This podcast episode has been produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network in collaboration with Archaeosoup Productions. Find out more podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.